to walk humbly with your God. And we opened the series a few weeks ago by talking about mercy, justice, and humility with God as a cluster that can't be separated. It's a, they're intertwined. You can't have mercy without justice, and you can't have justice without mercy, and you can't have either of those two without a humble walk with God. And uh, then over the next couple of weeks, uh, Wade uh, talked about, uh, specifically, he, he, he um, uh, looked at the uh, situation in Alberta. We, we looked at a First Nations uh, reserve, the Lubicon Cree in, in northern Alberta, which is an ongoing, festering, unresolved justice issue in our country. And then the following week, we continued to, to address First Nations. We had Steve Jacesta share his journey in residential school. By the way, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission uh, is coming to Vancouver in two years. They're going to be here, and they want to. Their vision is to fill BC Place Stadium. Wouldn't that be great? And uh, just just allow some First Nations stories to be shared nationally. And uh, so they want us to be involved in that as a church. And, and uh, talking to one of the representatives yesterday. But Steve is quite involved in, in that process, the Truth and Reconciliation. And then last week, of course, the Maasai Choir was here. And uh, what, an ex- what a great Sunday. What a great day we had together. What amazing time. Again, thanks to Gordy and team. Fantastic, you guys. Uh, and great offering. Uh, second love offering. Fantastic. So thank you, church. Uh, woohoo! So there's no way that we could do a series on social justice and not have Ralph uh, speak to us. Ralph and Donna, this has been their life. Uh, it's been such a privilege to get to know them. I think I first actually met them um, at um, Kirsten's wedding, wasn't it? I think so. D- uh, Ralph sat down at the rehearsal dinner and said to me, he just had this guy from Indonesia hand him a check for $5 million U.S., to start a new orphanage, <laughs> I thought, oh, well, this is interesting. And uh, so the journey has gone from there. Uh, just amazing to see the work that they're doing, uh, providing refuge for the orphans. Uh, today's orphans, tomorrow's leaders, and the founding of Hope for the Nation. So I was so excited when I found out I, about a year ago that they were moving to Vancouver from Kelowna. And that as long as they were around, that this was going to be their home. What, a, what an honor. What a privilege to have them amongst us. So I want you to welcome Ralph as he comes. I want to pray over you. And uh, yes. Welcome. Good. Lord, thank you for our, our brother and our friend. Thank you for Ralph and Donna. Thank you for... The legacy, Lord, that we've seen through their own family here in our own church, not to mention the nations in the way that you have used them, Lord, to uh, provide, to, to, to release that stream of justice. Lord, open his mouth, his lips, open his heart to declare what you have put there, and we open our hearts to receive. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Gordy. Well, we're in for a light morning, human trafficking. 
It's interesting. Uh, I've, I've never uh, shared this in a, in a church context before, but uh, for churches to open their, um, their teaching to issues of justice, I think is a very commendable thing. Often we like to talk about nice things. We might like to talk about uh, do things, but uh, to open up and talk about justice. Historically, uh, the, the churches or, or more of the modern churches have not been that keen on talking about justice. Uh, you don't often hear about justice uh, in church context. There hasn't been the convergence of teaching between what's happening out there and what's being taught in the church. And so uh, the church... Uh, often steers away from issues of justice and injustice because it just gets you into a whole lot of trouble. And uh, so to be able to just come and share about, uh, and specifically the issue about trafficking, it's, uh, um, it's a good thing and uh, for the elders and the leaders of this church just to open up and let's just talk about this stuff and uh, see what happens. And out of a small community like this, we can literally make a difference. We can touch the world. Uh, the other thing about uh, justice is, and when you go into issues of trafficking in any of these dark uh, places on earth, um, the one thing that you absolutely have to know is that God is not losing. Uh, we can come into a situation like this and we go, wow, this is a global scourge. We can talk about wars. We can talk about uh, discriminations. We can talk about these issues in our own nations and really feel like the enemy. And we know Isaiah says gross darkness will cover his people. And it does. But we miss the part that talks about light and how light transcends darkness. It, it, it dispels darkness. And wherever I go in the world, in the nations, and it doesn't matter if I'm in the slums or in the deserts or in the ghettos or in the mountains or jungles, um, God's people and God's activity is there. The kingdom of God is pulsating. And God is not losing. And uh, you always have to know that when we go into these, these difficult things. God moves into the darkness as in Genesis 1, and he just says, let there be light. I mean, it's that easy for him. Flip on the lights. And darkness scatters, and so we, we must remember that. But I love Micah 6.8 because it, what we have is, is a covenantal lawsuit. God is in heaven, and out of covenant law, he's bringing, he's bringing a lawsuit against his own people. Isn't that interesting? And in this lawsuit, as we know we've gone before, that the charge that he is registering against his people is infidelity and injustice. That's what you've done. And so the people, as we've studied this before, uh, they plea bargain. And, and they say very simply, um, God, like we're hooped. We're guilty. Is there anything that we can do to make the sentence a little, a little easier? And so they list all these commodities of cattle and oil and things. And God says, well, why do I want those? And then they get pretty desperate, and, and out of their own practice, they say, well, what about human sacrifice? Is that enough? And as we know, as the story goes, they are guilty as charged. And the sentence is this, is to do justice, is to love mercy, and is to walk humbly with God. The word justice often we, we throw around quite a bit. And, and God is pretty emphatic about this. He simply says, do justice. 
What is justice? And uh, as we go to Isaiah 58, you know uh, possibly the way the text goes is where the people are doing all this religious activity, a lot of it not bad, and very much like our church today. But at the very core of all their activity, they're missing what God is on his heart. So desperately on the heart of God is justice. It's not anger, it's justice. And, and it's his heart of love and compassion for his people. And he's saying, this is really messing my people up. And so the tithe or the, um, what God says in Isaiah 58 is at the core what you're missing is you're missing justice. And there's two kinds of justice that we need to really understand here. And the first uh, is prophetic justice. That's Isaiah 58, 6. And that's where he says to the people, like, what we're talking about here in prophetic justice is we're, we're breaking the bonds. We're breaking the heavy yokes. We're lifting the burdens off of the people. We're stepping into oppression. That's prophetic justice. It's where you go into the face of the perpetrators. You go and you stare them down um, like that uh, uh, Tiananmen Square individual, that picture there, and you stand in front of those tanks and you say, you are the perpetrators. You are the ones who are bringing this oppression and burdens and yokes upon our people. What we're more comfortable, of course, with the church today is philanthropic justice. And those are the kinds of things that we love to, you know, some people really love to do, not all people, but is really attend to the needs of being a good neighbor. And so we, uh, we uh, when they're hungry, we feed them. When they're naked, we clothe them. When they're thirsty, we give them drink, and we move into those places. But for this scripture to work, Micah 6.8, you actually have to invert the order of what God has said. God says, do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with God. In practice, it's the reversal. You must start with humility. And humility basically just says, I'm not God. Now, we, we might kind of laugh at that and say, yeah, of course we're not. But every time, you know, we, uh, you know, we step in and, and we move into the alpha position in any of our decisions to do with finances or activities, in one sense, we're making ourselves God. And so we, we play this God game a whole lot. It's where we're in charge. And it's when God brings us to our knees that finally a day comes where we say, Lord, you know, you're in charge. So humility is totally leaving God in the alpha position. This mess that the world is in, God, you're in the alpha position. Let's start there. And then it also says, I am not Messiah. I cannot go and change this world. And a lot of times, you know, you hear people pray in in certain very ambitious ways, and they're going to rip this evil out, and they're going to take care of that evil, and they're going to, you know, destroy that city and everything. No. I don't know where that comes from, but that kind of a Messiah approach doesn't work. When it comes to the evil on earth and God's people, God always comes back to the teaching of Jesus, which says, guys, it's about salt and light. And we want to be so ambitious and so brave and so extravagant and great in what we do that, that, you know, we're going to rip these walls out and we're going to tear out prostitution. And look at all these campaigns. Has it stopped pornography? Has it stopped abortion? Has it stopped war? Has it stopped any of these, these trades? Has it stopped discrimination? No, it doesn't. 
Okay? And so what we do is we begin in this place of humility is where we come in gentleness. We come in quietness. And we say, God, you are God. How do I cooperate with what's on your heart? How can I do something? The next step then that leads us, uh, when we come to that place, it leads us to mercy. And mercy are those things that we just read in Isaiah 58 of where you are the good neighbor. You love the person next door. You're practical. You actually do something. And mercy is the prerequisite to justice. You start with mercy, and as you begin to develop mercy, as you begin to work with, with acts of mercy, that gives you the qualifications to step into issues of justice. You can't jump to justice. These people who get out and raise their, their little flags and whatever, the enemy or the, the powers that be, just laugh at them. Justice, you only get there by earning your stripes. In the trenches of mercy. So somebody say, well, look at the Arab Spring that we've just had. Look at the way they overthrew their governments in Tunisia and Egypt, etc. What about that? I tell you, those people who fought in that revolution have been in the trenches of mercy for decades. They have been comforting those who mourn. They have been good neighbors to those that they see oppressed, and they've been helping them for decades. They've been caring for them and like good neighbors and loving for them. And finally, you know, it hit the, the, the tripwire of change, and they said, no more, enough is enough. And they would risk their lives and move out there and fight the injustice of those regimes. We need to understand that. And that's why mercy is so important, caring and giving and loving our neighbors. Because a day comes where God says, all right, now we can step into the issues of justice and fight injustice. Why? Injustice is dirty work. Injustice is dangerous work. You're working against the regimes of power that you feel that are impenetrable. They're the Goliaths of this earth. Even this, the whole subprime thing, that is the powers and the, and the brokers and governments and Wall Streets and financial institutions who've brought that on. And they have yet to face any form of justice. Injustice is dirty work and can lead you into a whole lot of trouble. You're dealing with evil powers. You're dealing with billions of dollars. You're dealing with, with systemic corruption. That just doesn't go away. This morning we're going to look at the issue of trafficking and injust- uh, in, in the context of Micah 6-8, injustice. And there's one reference in scripture that, refi- that refers to human trafficking as part of this evil. And it's the evils of Babylon in Revelation chapter 18. And what we see is that in the spirit of the Babylon is that all of the nations of the earth, they have drunk of the intoxicating fornication of Babylon. They, the nations are into it. And it says the merchants of the earth, they have come rich through the abundance of the luxury of the spirit of Babylon. And what they have done in the coming of rich is through all the commodities, the golds, the silvers, the precious stones. It's been through the spices and the, and the luxury items, the wheat, the flour, the cattle, the sheep, the horses. 
And the last is the bodies and the souls of people. Human trafficking. And it's global. It's big. In terms of the dark enterprise, the black enterprise of this world, it is now number two. It has surpassed the drug trade in its wealth. We need to look at it because it's there for us to look at. Let me just give you a definition, and then I'm going to show you a media clip. What is human trafficking? And let me just put it up here so you can see the words and may not digest it that quickly. But... um, See, just go back here one sec. It's the act where you recruit, and this happened. This is Canada. It's just not out there. It's Vancouver. It's in our own areas, in our own neighborhoods, is where you recruit, you transport, you transfer, you harbor, you receive per- people, young and old, for the purpose of exploitation. That's what it's about, exploitation for, fun, for money. By using or threatening force, you coerce them, you abduct, abduct them. It's fraud, it's deception, it's abuse of power against them. By giving or receiving payment for benefit to those who control them. So it's a, it's a calculated system of where you take people against their wills and you move them, and it's always for the purpose of finances. I'm just going to show you a, a quick uh, a media clip of exactly what this definition looks like. Uh, it's going to be disturbing. Um, don't worry, it's not X-rated, even though it takes in uh, context of, of, of trafficking, sexual trafficking. And um, I'm going to just show it to you, and um, then we'll carry on, because um, this is the, the, the dirt into which we're going. It starts in a, in a van, so it's a little dark. Don't 
不好意思，他需要多一点时间。Human trafficking is real people. It's estimated to be well over $31 billion industry. That's a pretty conservative estimate. The interesting thing about trafficking rarely is about being kidnapped or people taken by force. Most uh, victims are, are people who are taken by uh, their parents, sold by their uh, parents, relatives, tricked by friends. Um, even in our own malls, um, uh, it's friends who re, you know, do the recruiting of, of the youth in our own cities. And so uh, there's some, you know, often misinformation and understanding about how the kidnapping works. But, but very simply, um, born out of poverty, 
we desperately need this money. Here are ways that, that people can be trafficked. And um, because of poverty, most of it does take place in the developing nations, um, in nation states that that are are falling apart, where there's you know the governments and civil society is not caring properly for their own people, and so uh, in that context, uh, where there's not uh, proper policing, proper courts, um, that that it just rises. And, and it just goes on, and that's why so much of it takes place under the cloud of disasters, under the cover of war, uh, and uh, certainly under the cover of poverty. And um, But in, in certainly it is true that 70% of the uh, sexual trafficking, as we just saw on this clip, um, is destined for Asia. And a lot of times, you know, we just think that it's something that's it's all coming our way. And very, very much of it is coming our way. It's very, very lucrative. But uh, a lot of the major markets of the world definitely, definitely are, are in Asia. For example, in the uh, greater Mekong region, re, uh, nations of Laos, Cambodia, Thailand, uh, Vietnam, and Yunnan, China, uh, the demand for girls uh, between the eight, age of 8 and 12 years old are 40 million. 40 million for uh, uh, the demand for the trafficking and uh, sex tourism and uh, etc. And so we're talking uh, absolutely massive numbers here. And we simply, uh, you know, want to know, okay, is there is there something we can do about it? But um, before I go there is, is, like, why do we actually do this? And on uh, the economically exploited, let's just look at some of these numbers, because um, trafficking is under the classifications in the United Nations of, of something called dangerous labor. So it's not all sexual trafficking. It's called dangerous labor. People traffic for those purposes. And so um, if, if the dangerous labor happens to be in, in say, chemical plants or, you know, down under the ground where children go down these, these gopher holes and, uh, and they go after tanzanite or precious stones or things like that. Um, a lot of them die down there. They suffocate down there. Um, or in, in places where there's fumes in the factories and that, that's dangerous labor. So if we look at, for example, just the, the one side, if you take a person in sub-Saharan Africa and they're, they're trafficked for economic exploitation, in a year they will turn over $360 for, uh, you know, for their, the people who bring them in, $360. If that same person is sent into the industrialized economies of the Europe or, or America, um, that one individual for labor will generate $30,000. That is the reason why they try to ship them, you know, uh, offshore, because that money jumps from $360 to $30,000. That's dangerous labor uh, um, in the economic area. But if you move into the exploited column, you'll see that that same person, if they work in the sex trade in sub-Saharan Africa, they'll turn $10,000 a year for their owners. 10000 And compared to $360, that's quite a jump. And that person, if they come into the industrialized economy, they will, they will make for their people $67,000. 
So this little girl that was on our clip from Mudan, from Cambodia, you know, they move them into Bangkok where they're groomed for the markets of America. They teach them how to curtsy, how to bow, how to make it through immigration, how to, you know, uh, make it past all the potential areas to stop the trafficking. And so when she started, and one of the girls that Don and I worked with, Noel, a little 10-year-old girl, she was sold for $10, and that's where it begins. And when they move through, uh, and they come through Vancouver, uh, West Coast, San Francisco, etc., uh, but if they come Canada, the route is, is Vancouver, Toronto, Detroit, and into the United States, where they hit the human auctions, and one child, that one child, for $10,000, is sold at a human auction for about $45,000. And so you can see how lucrative it is and why so many people uh, you know, move into, uh, into this uh, area of crime. But those, those numbers can be absolutely overwhelming. But, you know, the interesting thing is that... Is that um, Trafficking has a human face. It's about people. It's not about numbers. It's not about dollars. It's about a person. Here's a person that I met six weeks ago, a little boy that didn't have a name, so we called him Johnny. Let me read you um, a story, and this is a story about Johnny, and just came from, uh, from my last trip. Today, we went to an isolated border crossing where many children are trafficked into Thailand. The human trafficking circuit from Laos, Burma, Cambodia, funneled through Poi Pet, Cambodia, that's where we set up shop, into Thailand, where the product is human lives. They're distributed to brothels, auctions, and nations of the world. A young boy around 9 or 10 years old had been captured by the Border Patrol the night before. He and a girl around the same age had fled from the traffickers and were trying to escape when the boy was caught and then the girl continued to run into the forest. At the border, there were incidences where some of these guards used the children for their own sexual pleasure and then sell them back to the traffickers for a bribe. The traffickers do not need passports, birth certificates, or visas for the children in order to get them across the border. In many cases, they just need bribe money. These guards were intimidated by our cameras at first and then freely shared about the little boy that was in their custody, asking us if we wanted to take him. So we did, right there and then. The boy is terrified. He is wanting to run, hiding under the table. He'd been drugged, and there was evidence of needle marks between his thumb and finger. Sometimes the children are drugged to sleep so they will not cry out for help. When he was captured at the border, he had a number 18 label glued into his back. He was definitely a victim of human trafficking. His whole being was traumatized, but he was a survivor for sure. He sat in the back of our van, silent, watchful, fearful. He had no trust, not in anybody. Looking for a way to escape, he did not know that he was safe. For him, what was safety? When we arrived at Safe Haven, and this is the village that we've built for this purpose, 
The other children came out to greet him. Fear continued to grip him. He held on to a pillar rather than run under a table, and he attempted to run through our gates. Our guide from Cambodia Hope Organization explained that this is not uncommon for the children when they first come to Safe Haven Village. All the children there have been rescued out of risk and trafficking situations. They are all now happy, peaceful little children. The little boy was nameless because for the three days I was there, he was mute. He was just traumatized. He couldn't speak. So we couldn't figure out his name, so we called him Johnny, beloved of God. After we put him in his room for the night, he broke down and cried. This was a good thing. How long had he held the tears within him with no freedom to release those tears? Trafficking has a human face. It's always about people. God's always about people. His heart's always about people. And he hears the cry. Ecclesiastes says he looks down and he hears every evil. Sees it, knows it. And his heart is for justice. His heart beats for justice. And Ecclesiastes says he looks and he's, he's, he, he's bewildered because he's wondering... Why don't people help? Why don't they do something? This is a church that cares and does do something. So we don't feel overwhelmed by this. Because it's about individuals. It's about the little Johnnies. And just um, yesterday, one of our friends, Cassandra, a young girl from Saskatchewan, in her 20s, was flown in, um, in, went to the Congo, was flown in behind the wire, dropped there for a couple days by helicopter in, right into the rebel country. The UN allowed it to happen so she could just uh, be there and meet such people. She also works um, in, in um, Mombasa, Kenya, and uh, in the red light district there, just all young girls trafficked, brought in from villages and sold and, and used and abused. And, and so she wrote me an email just before she went in behind the wire. And this is her experience. And so what I'm, I'm just going to read it to you and, and ask you, what should we do? It's a simple question. But what should we do? And in response to an email like this, Mombasa, Kenya, I lost you. Can I go back and pick it up? In short, the government, the Kenyan government, they tried, they tried to reduce prostitution, and their solution was close down the bars at 10 o'clock. Could you imagine that happening in Vancouver? It'd really work, wouldn't it? This obviously didn't help, but rather just changed where the girls meet. Well, we have a church and a school in one of the nastiest areas of this trashy village, 20 minutes north of Mombasa. Since they've done this, my staff keep finding little girls who are working for sex, being pimped out. My pastor recently called me, and he said he was currently 
talking with around 30 girls under the age of 15 caught in this trade. Last month, we helped rescue two little girls. We moved them to a center just outside of Nairobi. It was great, but our thoughts have moved to, what about the rest? Especially because my staff is already stretched, and I, right now I, she's in the Congo. I'm not actually living in Kenya. If you have any ideas, any contacts, any centers near the coast, or connections with people who want to open a home for children who've been prostituted, let me know. Question. When we come across issues of injustice, they're about real situations and real people. And the next pathway in justice is that of advocacy. We step up to the plate and we do something. We do something. Just out of curiosity in this room, how would you handle this email if you were me? Where do we begin? Let's have some ideas. You begin by feeling it. You cry. You pray. And some people are touched a lot more keenly because of your own histories. You feel it. And you weep on behalf of these girls. What else? What could we do? So we've heard something about trafficking in this room. What might we do? Something like this. Could adopt some. A difficult process. They don't have papers. Most of them aren't even registered as people in the slums. They have no birth date. They have no certification. So likely getting them out outside of Kenya is not possible. But it's a start. Yeah. Relocate them. You have to move them physically out of the areas where they're so heavily exploited. Donna and I leave for 10 days to Cambodia, and we're going to be opening the Hope Transformation Center. And this purpose, we, bu- we built this building, or we bought this building, renovated this building, and one of the floors are all suites. Uh, uh, two girls in a, in a nice little suite. They have their own little bathroom, and it's just a little 10 by 10 room, maybe not even that. And uh, they're going to think that they're in Shangri-La. But they have been relocated from these provinces where they've been trafficked into our area so that, that the triads and gang members, etc., won't have any access to them. But you've got to get them out. You've got to relocate them. And the question is, relocate them to where? And so you do have to begin there. You can't leave them there where they're repeatedly. That's good. Okay, we're making progress. Now what? The government sounds like they are actually interested in reducing prostitution. So you need to actually have somebody talk to the government about possibly um, whether they would consider building a home somewhere. Okay, approaching government and advocacy is actually... You know, you work at the low ground level, but you move up to the uh, yeah, up to governmental levels, 
And um, it is most important to position yourself where you're operating at both levels. Uh, the last trip that I was into Cambodia, where this story of Johnny took place, uh, we, I was invited in and I brought two uh, urban planners with me because in this city on Poi Pet, it's right on the border where all the trafficking goes through to Thailand. The, the mayor, governor, and council invited us in and said, will you provide us with a master plan for this city to the year 2030? And that's what we're doing there is we're working at the government level and we're not going to fight evil. The best way to fight evil is to bring in good. And good and light displaces evil and darkness. And so a lot of times we're always in attack mode rather than into a building mode. And you move in and you move into your neighborhoods and, and, and you set up your little your chili wagon and you feed the poor. You're right there. And it displaces hunger as you work out from there. And so we also must work at the government levels. Okay? Sorry? Get education, absolutely, absolutely. And we need to find all kinds of creative ways of education. So um, in uh, back to Cambodia, all along the border is where the Khmer Rouge from the killing fields, they've, they've been exiled to live along the border. We've identified 60 villages where we're actively working. There's no government services. The traffickers go through there because there's no police. There's no government officials. These people are despised by everybody. The whole area is landmined. There's likely millions of landmines still there. You've got to be very careful where you go. And we've set up shop in these, these, uh, these villages. We've identified 1,500 children that are uh, you know, uh, at risk for trafficking. And what did we do? Started mat schools. Mat schools are you put a mat on the floor, the kids come out, and four days a week they get instruction and education. You don't need to build a building. You just need a mat and somebody who can teach them. You've got to teach them. And we teach them about trafficking. We teach them about drugs. We teach them about pedophiles. We show them what they look like. And uh, we teach them about landmines. We teach them about health care, water, and certainly about the gospel. Education, you've got to do that. Let me just make one observation in this room. The very fact that you guys are thinking about this and making suggestions knows and shows that you're getting involved in injustice. It shows that there's something that you can do to fight back and to push back. Because that's very simply what it comes down to is injustice happens to people. And when it happens to people, sometimes you get to know the name of that person. And you can find a solution. Not all of the solution, but you can come and you can make a difference. And so that's what I love about this call where God says to us, do justice. Do justice. He looks you in the face and he says, you, you do justice. And these little suggestions and pieces that we've been talking about this morning shows that you know how to get to practical steps of justice. And God is pleased by that. Because I know that if I were to stand here in a year, something will have happened in Mombasa with these girls. I will show you their faces. I will tell you their names. 
And so we go back in, in uh, a couple of weeks to show what a whole lot of people have done and rallied in this center that we're going to open up. The grand opening. Johnny's going to be there. Mana, a girl that was adopted. A little Cambodian girl sold for $10 when our friends came and, and uh, intervention occurred. She's adopted. She loves the Lord with all of her heart. And her whole family, even the mother who is selling her, have come to Christ. And all the kids in that family are in school. Why? People in the West sponsor. They say, here's $40, here's $50. You see, in one sense, we have a Goliath of a problem. But God knows that when we move to salt and light, every one of us can make a difference. Thank you. Thank you, Ralph.